It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com. Monica Rosenfeld, welcome to the show. Welcome to Become Your Own Superhero. Thank you. I cannot wait. I'm so excited to be here. I listen to your podcast. I absolutely love it. So I'm thrilled to be on the couch. Well, a guest and a fan. Yeah. What an absolute treat. And you've <laughs> flown down from Sydney down to Melbourne, yeah. almost especially for this opportunity. Yeah, I know. So really exciting. Well, thank you for being involved in this. And, and uh, our friendship extends over a year now. We met mm-hmm. at the Professional Speakers Conference mm-hmm. in South Australia. I suppose a good place to start off is for people that don't know who you are, mm-hmm. who is Monica Rosenfeld when she's at home? Good question. <laughs> okay, so I am a Sydney-born um, Romanian ancestry, um, 46-year-old. <laughs> and, yeah, so my parents um, were children of Holocaust survivors. Um, they grew up in Romania and they came to Australia with absolutely nothing. So they sort of escaped Romanian Um, communist Romania on a boat. It was a six-week journey. Um, They had no English, no money, and they were teenagers. And you can only imagine their parents had all lost family in the Holocaust, and they were um, just hoping for a better life, um, which is absolutely floors me, because just have that courage and that resilience to just get on a boat and just hope for the best (laughs) and just you know, that hope um, and striving for a better future for future generations. And I'm really lucky because I am that future generation. And then, you know, my kids and their kids later, hopefully a lot later, <laughs> will, will benefit from my grandparents' um, courage, I'd say. So I grew up in lovely Dover Heights in Sydney. I was privileged, you know, went to great school, I had amazing friends. My dad, uh, after arriving in Australia with no money, my parents settled and my dad was determined that he would make good money and own the best house and the best suburb and drive the best cars and give his kids the best education. And so I just benefited from all of that. So I grew up in a very loving and great family and, and then my dad was a business owner, so he, he's an accountant, retired now. My mum worked as a pathologist as well until I was two years old and then she became sort of a full-time mum. Like growing up, I thought I always wanted to be a journalist. I really enjoyed writing and I just thought I want to work in media, but I had no idea what that meant really. I just knew that 
I like the idea of being a journalist and working in media. And then after school finished, I um, did a Bachelor of Arts actually. So I was going to do a Bachelor of Communications and for some reason did arts because you needed like 98 or something to get into where I want to do comms and I got 96 point something. So <laughs> I did arts and, um, and then while I was at university, it, you know, university was just fun. I just studied a lot of different subjects um, and pretty much used uni to save money to go traveling like three years later. So finished uni, went traveling, um, backpacked around Southeast Asia for six months, had a ball. It was absolutely fantastic. That freedom, like I'd never felt that freedom before. I mean, when in life do you get that freedom to just do endless traveling, no parents telling you what to do? <laughs> it was amazing. And then um, after this six months landed in Europe, in, I think it was in Holland actually initially, which is ironic because my husband's Dutch now, but I spent in one week what I would have spent in a month on an island in Southeast Asia. And I was like, shit, I need to get a job. <laughs> um, and ended up in London and started working. So my dad had connections with this woman who was working for a big um, media agency, doing all kinds of different um, media and events. And I got a job as the Girl Friday kind of thing. So I was pretty much the run below the receptionist and she treated me <laughs> like shit. <laughs> so I was literally running around making really bad coffee for everyone, hanging up jackets and being on the edge of this business that I wanted to be part of and I was just sort of on the edge of it, which was the perfect place to be because I befriended a lot of people just naturally, just I enjoy people and talking to people and... Um, about, I think it was about four four months in, the production assistant of this fashion and lifestyle documentary um, quit, just one day she just quit. And it was a small team, there were like five of them in the team. And by this stage, I'd got to know the producer pretty well. So I just begged her for an opportunity. Um, and I just said, I'll work day and night. I, I don't have the experience, but I've got the will and I, I know I'll do a good job for you. And she gave me a job. So that was my first job in, in sort of my career, so to speak. Um, and it was unbelievable. As I said, fashion and lifestyle documentary, filming all around Europe, interviewing the likes of Vivian Westwood, Manolo Blahnik, all the top fashion designers and restaurateurs in, in Paris, the president of Lalique and, and got really close with the, with my team and the crew. And they literally, I think they just enjoyed taking this little Australian under their wing and just giving me all these opportunities. So I was literally running around the streets. I was, um, we went to London Fashion Week. I was sitting behind that Vogue editor with the big quiff <laughs> and just pinching myself thinking, what am I doing here? So that was amazing. And that was the beginning of my career in media, essentially. Wow. It's like from Eat, Pray, Love to yeah. uh, the boiler room almost. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, a great, what a great transition. <laughs> yeah. This is something that I find really interesting, that, that uh, opportunity to be around mm. what I suppose uh, people that were unattainable or untouchable for up until that point. Yeah. What was it? 
or what learnings did you get, if any, about being around these these high caliber people? Yeah, that has impacted your life from then. I think the key learning is that they're just people. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I am one of the most starstruck people I know. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I just faint at the sight of someone who's in commercials um, a lot. I just think, you know, I did meet a lot of these people and that they were very high-achieving people. And at the end, what I saw was if you have sort of determination and guts and a willingness to, to just go out there and break down barriers and just live your dream, it is achievable. But I actually didn't consciously think of it at the time. You know, I was in my early 20s and I was just doing what I was doing. But I think a lot of it did seep in unconsciously, you know, so while I was while I was on that program. It's so great. Uh, and, you know, they, they say, they say, and this is backed up by a lot of science, that we yeah. become like the people, the five or so people we spend the most time yeah, around. I believe in that for sure. Isn't yeah. it so yeah. true? And, yeah. and uh, you know, that, that comment regarding that they are just human beings yeah, as well through yeah. this whole podcast journey i've been mm-hmm. able to speak to people that would have ordinarily yeah. turned me into a sycophantic yeah. uh weeping mess <laughs> and uh in many cases i've been able to add a lot of value into their lives mm-hmm. you know in, in addition mm-hmm. to what i'm getting from them yeah. was that anything that happened to you I, I think so particularly not so much the celebrities that we interviewed but the team that i worked with so anna um was this wonderful person who I thought was really old, but she was about 29, I was about 22. (laughs) And um, she kept thanking me, like, for everything that I was doing and giving to them. And I was just confused by that because I was just thinking, you know, I I was just so grateful for the opportunities I was getting. But I know that I did help her a lot. Like, she she had quite a few dramas in her life. Um, And when you work with someone closely, you're a part of that. Um, so yeah, I def- definitely did feel that I was starting to give value back as well. Brilliant. So that was good. And like a lot of Kiwis and Australians, your working holiday visa expired yeah. and they booted you back. Yep, they booted me back. So I was faced with coming back to Australia, which I wasn't upset about because I absolutely did not want to go through another English winter. I, I <laughs> realised how much I take for granted the Aussie sun, surf and lifestyle and I have never taken it for granted again after that trip and that's why I think everyone needs to travel, open your horizon, see what else is out there, So really just so that you know how good you've got it. <laughs> um, but before coming back to Australia, I sent, I bought this production book that I don't think is in existence anymore but it lists every single production house in Australia. And I think I sent off about 300 CVs and that was before sort of leaving London. And within two weeks of touching down, I did get a job um, pretty much straight away um, at a, a TV production called Bright Ideas. So it's one of these sort of Saturday morning infomercial type shows. Uh, you don't, it's not, it's not out any longer. Um, and it was great to just get back to Sydney and get stuck into another job. And that job wasn't nearly as exciting. Um, and, but within about five months, I saw a job come up at Channel 9's Getaway. And I thought, oh, I'd really like to get into that. So I had an interview and in the interview, I think I just 
self-combusted with excitement. <laughs> um, and I didn't hear back from them for a while and I thought, oh, I've blown it. But then, yeah, I got the call that you got the job. But the interesting thing about that job interview is it was for the production assistant. And as part of it, I had to use Photoshop for doing the maps that you see as part of the show. You know, if you want to travel here, you get a flight here and do yeah, that. And yeah. that's all on Photoshop. I am not a graphic designer. I am not familiar. I'm actually very untechnical and I never even heard of Photoshop. Anyway, they said in the photo, in, in the job interview, so do you know, are you accomplished using Photoshop? I said, yes, I am. <laughs> I am. I've had some photos developed before. Yeah. <laughs> and then I went, I left the interview and I called my graphic designer friend and I said, um, how hard is this Photoshop program to learn? She said, put it this way, I'm doing, spending about, you know, six months of my degree sort of learning the ins and outs of it. And I was like, well, do you think you can give me a lesson in like a weekend? <laughs> so essentially I got the job and then I learned what I needed Photoshop for, which luckily wasn't too complicated. You know, you can use it to the great extent or you can just learn to use it the way you need it. And I learned to do that and I got away with it. But I think the reason I bring that up is I've always been the sort of person to just say yes and make it work. Um, and that's what the message that I like to get out there about just even if you're scared of it, even if you don't know how you're going to do it, even if you think you can't do it, if it's something you want to do, um, just make it work. And, and in making it work, you will move your life forward to the next level that your life should be at. And that applies in so many areas of your life, from your career, to your relationships, to the way you are with your kids, to your travel, to your aspirations. So often people hold themselves back because they think they can't or they're scared. With, with Getaway, it was just another example of sort of just saying yes and making it work. I suppose I'm curious to know, to sort of revisit your mum and your dad again, mm. because they, they went through this, what I like to call this gift of adversity. Yeah. And it's something that I think uh, most people experience in some way, shape or form in yeah. their life. Yeah. And and it may not seem like it's actually mm. beneficial at the time, mm. certainly not being on the receiving end of a Holocaust, mm. but there is goodness in, yeah. in everything that we do. Yeah. And without that, you know, observing your, your parents and particularly your father by the sounds yeah. of it, and his work ethic and building something mm. from nothing. Mm. Do you think that you would have had the the ability to get to where mm. you have achieved today? I think being brave and going for something um, was normalised in my household, and we just grew up with it. So, as I was growing up as a kid, I didn't realise it. I didn't understand, and I didn't pay attention to how brave it was and how amazing it all was. But I think it's only as an adult and as a young adult, you start to look back and when you start to do these things yourself that you think, oh, wow, that was really brave. And I seem to have caught some of that <laughs> um, in my personality or, or in my upbringing and seeing that. So, but I, I think it's, it's a product of one, how you're brought up and the situations that you face and two, slightly personality as well. Although I think if you have a personality that's not as, uh, should I say, courageous or gregarious, I think you can yeah. still learn that if you if you want to do those things, you can develop that within yourself. I, I couldn't agree more. And, and I think for anyone that's experienced 
uh, a different childhood or, or parents that were very fearful and that weren't able mm. to encourage them or esteem them in that mm. right manner. There were certainly aspects of how I grew up that I that I wish that I'd been given way more encouragement. Mm. But you know what? I've been able to develop that by becoming yeah. self-aware and becoming consciously incompetent yeah. initially yeah. and and surrounding myself with people that have done it yeah. and and reading material of people yeah. that have done it as well. Yeah. And and I think the the blessing that you got is that you got it as a as a young woman, yeah. as a young girl, yeah. and it's just been hardwired into your into yeah. your DNA. Yeah. Now. We we just didn't know any different to sort of all my dad's friends were business owners. Um, and I'm not saying you have to be a business owner, but just growing up, owning a business was completely normalized in my life and my psyche. What is a common belief for the general populace mm -hmm. that you've come to learn is an absolute opposite? across any area of your life? I think a common belief that I think is false that people are told all the time is that we have to live a certain way and by society's rules. And I think it's up to each of us to find what the way we feel happy and free. So we're kind of all brought up in a little bit of a jail and we are programmed by our parents, our families and society to believe and act in a certain way. So I think for the first 20 odd years of your life, you're programmed. And then you spend the next 20 to 40 to 60 years of your life unprogramming yourself. <laughs> yeah. And that's what I really believe to be true because I believe as a soul, we choose our parents for the journey that we're meant to go on. And we do that and then you know, you're born as a clean slate, although you're not totally clean slate because you've got all those, I believe, past lives and things that come in, but you don't remember those <laughs> past the age of two, and some people remember them around two. And then you are programmed. And if you don't like the way you're programmed, you need to do even more work to unprogram yourself. Um, so I think everyone has that spark of individuality Everyone feels happy in different ways and feels free, free in different ways. And I think the faster you work out that you can create your own reality out of that programming jail, the sooner you're going to live your purpose and feel really happy and free in your life. Great advice. I really feel it's one of the probably the most important areas of my life that I've been able mm -hmm. to work on. It's funny you talk about this, uh, this past life. Uh, I'm very public about me not being religious in any, any capacity, mm. but I'm very spiritual. Mm. And I, one of the things that I'm really most proud of, Monica, is that I feel like I've broken this cycle of intergenerational trauma mm. in in both sides of my yeah. mum and dad's side. Something yeah. in here is is, yeah. is is telling me this, whatever that might yeah. be. And uh, that's that's been one of the beautiful byproducts of doing exactly what you were talking about yeah, here. Exactly. And, and I think as humans, we're all here to evolve and grow. And the only way you evolve and grow is by challenging yourself. And if you're not placed in situations of adversity, almost giving yourself that adversity and you give yourself that adversity by doing things that you potentially fear or that you don't know how you're going to do them. <laughs> yeah. So 
I was blessed um, to be brought up in a life where I wanted for nothing. I had all the love I need, want, needed and wanted. I had, you know, financial security. My parents gave me everything. Um, but they were very conscious not to overspoil us. So even though after a while my dad's business started doing well and we had all the money we could have, um, I've, you know, they, they felt very strongly that we'd know the value of money. So I've had a job since I was 13 and sort of when I traveled, my dad said, you earn as much money as you can and I'll match that. So they always matched things and yeah. made my life easier wow. that way. But if I would have just sat around and said, okay, dad, give me the 10 grand for the travel, that would not have happened. No, yeah, you would have turned into a, the opposite of what yeah. you are now. You've yeah. obviously been imparted with the gift of, uh, of gratitude yeah. And, and yeah. you know, perspective. Yeah. And I think yeah. certainly travel helps that as well. Yeah, definitely. And, and nothing more relevant than uh, being kept in your own country for a couple of years as a result of COVID to, to take those liberties away, you know. Yeah. It's made me appreciate yeah. the travel I've been able to do oh, as well. Absolutely. And then what you start doing is you start appreciating the travel that you can do. Yeah. So we've been exploring different parts of Australia that we just wouldn't have gone to. Um, and it's just been magnificent because those are the sorts of things that you think, oh, later, you know, I'll get to that later after I've done, you know, all these other places that get at least 24 hours away on an aeroplane. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, love it or hate it, mm. a current affair. Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Can you tell us a little bit about your time there? Absolutely. A current affair was an amazing experience for me. So, And what was it for our overseas audience okay. that haven't been living under a rock? Yeah. A current affair is Australia's top rating current affair program. Um, having said that, it's not the highest quality TV. <laughs> <laughs> um, current affair love stories such as, you know, um, people ch chasing people down the street because they've stolen from, you know, some retiree or <laughs> yeah, yeah. the latest diets or um, it's getting worse and worse. But when I worked there, it still wasn't high quality, but it was in the thick of its popularity. Um, so I, I was at Getaway. They had a summer break because um, they don't film for three to four months of the year. So I was faced with um, either getting a job as a waitress or doing something like that or trying to find another job within Channel 9. So I found myself a job at A Current Affair um, working for their summer series. So over the summer period, everyone goes on holidays, it's skeletal staff, and they just look for anyone. <laughs> so I was like, I'll do it. Um, had no idea what I was doing again, got there first day on the job and I was actually sitting opposite Ben Fordham, it was also his first day. Uh, and I was like, what do I do? <laughs> and then I thought, okay, I, I can figure this out. So I, I was a sort of researcher and a production assistant. And I thought, while I'm there, I have to make an impact so that I can keep a job here because I thought I want to be here. I know I can learn so much by being here. So I thought I really need to make impact and I just observed what people around me did. And I ended up um, pulling a story together about this big drug um, drug catch that happened um, from a big drug haul. And it was, a, it was a really great story and it did make an impact to my superiors. and. After the two months that I was there, I, I again, I begged for, for a job and they said, sure. 
So I was there for two years. And what I learned at A Current Affair was how to make hard and fast TV. You know, we were putting four to five stories tonight, every single night, Monday to Friday. And we were chasing new stories of the day. We were competing with the other networks because everyone wants to be first and everyone wants their main story. And we, so we're working in a tight knit team, high, high adrenaline. And again, it's, it was a very people oriented job. And that's where I sit well with people. So I was, you know, calling lots of people, researching stories, packaging it up, giving it to the reporters and yeah, just living my best life while I was there. It was absolutely <laughs> fantastic. It's so interesting. I, I When I first came to Australia from New Zealand, it was one of the first TV series that I was able yeah. to look at. I forget who was the host, but certainly uh, Tracy Grimshaw was the most memorable. Yeah. Who was the host when you were there? Uh, I had Mike Munro, and I could tell you a few stories where I might get in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll leave that for another interview, yeah, I think, yeah. because it sort of led you down this path to uh, what has become Wordstorm. Yeah, yeah. Can you explain to us what it is that you're doing now? Because this is this is where the gold is. Yeah, yeah. So I now I've been running a PR agency, Wordstorm PR, um, for 21 years. So, and what we do is we work with entrepreneurial and purpose-driven businesses um, to magnify their message in the media, to increase their credibility, visibility, and bottom line at the end of the day. So we work with people who are living a dream and quite often a nightmare because that's the entrepreneurial dream. It can turn into a nightmare all in one hour. <laughs> um, solving a problem and improving the lives of their clients, customers or the world in some way, shape or form. So we share our clients' stories and expertise in mass media. So we get our clients on, on TV, morning programs and current affair programs. Um, online news sites, radio, magazine, podcasts, that sort of thing. And it's been really fantastic. Well, it's funny, uh, Monica, in my book that I'm nearly finished, uh, I reference a period in there where I was high on cocaine. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I compared the feeling of being high on cocaine to that feeling you get when you see yourself on TV. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and I wondered what your thoughts on, on that kind of comparison might be. I, I don't yeah. know whether you've done cocaine. I don't yeah. want to put you on the spot. <laughs> but, but that feeling of seeing yourself on TV, certainly on a show like A Current Affair, in a good way yeah. I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are your thoughts? Well, I actually, I wasn't the reporter, so but I have been on TV, um, interviewed for a few things. And You've been on Sunrise, I've seen you. Yeah, yeah. So I've been interviewed on Sunrise and a few other morning programs. Um, and it's a bit of a, yeah, it is a bit of a spin out seeing yourself on TV. Um, and the, what's good about it is you feel like you can communicate what you want to communicate. It gives you just, it gives you the audience and the eyeballs to make it an impact and a difference. This whole being seen and the credibility that you're talking about mm. What is it about being being interviewed on Sunrise or whatever TV mm. channel, what it might be, that, that creates that credibility? Okay, I can tell you exactly what it is. Most people do not know how media works. So they think, Koshi got on into work today and thought, okay, we're going to do this interview where we need to interview the, vet, the best lawyer. So Koshi picked up the phone and thought, oh, I'm going to call Mr. Such and Such Lawyer um, because he must be the best. 
you know, come onto the couch and we want to interview you. What they don't, what people out there don't realise that it's it's business owners themselves, marketing managers and PR agencies who are contacting the media to get these people on TV or on radio or interviewed in in any mainstream or non-mainstream media outlet. So people think that the people in media are chosen, <laughs> whereas it's not actually the way it works. It's generally the people pushing themselves forward. But that's where the opportunity lies. And I'm now a speaker and a trainer. And what I love to do is demystify the media and show business owners and um, anyone out there with a message to share that there is an opportunity for them to shine in the media. All they need to do is package up their story and pitch it in a way that you're speaking to the journalists in their language. So I've created seven sort of newsworthy hooks that I layer my client's stories and content around to speak to journalists in their language so that it gets cut through. So that when the journalist gets that email pitch, they're like, this is something my audience will want to know. My audience will resonate with it um, and it will educate and add value to them. So let's get this person on the show or in the paper or whatever it is. Okay, brilliant. So let's use a real life example. Mm. Let's say we wanted to get Become Your Own Superhero podcast mm. out there. Yeah, yeah. What are some techniques that, yeah. that I can use to help yeah. okay. get interviewed on Sunrise or whatever it yeah. might be, right? So a typical way that most business owners would think when they think I want to be in the media and this is how most people do it. They will contact a journo and say, I've got an amazing podcast. Why don't you do a story on it? And the journalists think there's about a 10 million people out there with great podcasts. And that's not a story. That's what's in it for my audience. So what I would say to you is that, okay, a good angle would be firstly looking at the statistics of how many people are making podcasts. So the rate that people are producing contact, uh, are producing podcasts is increasing exponentially. I've been doing my podcast for a year and I've interviewed a hundred top people. Um, What's I've, your podcast called? Mine? Yeah. Magnify You. Magnify You. Yeah. And that, that's yeah. available. Yeah. On all, all the good. podcasts. Very good. Yeah. Channels. <laughs> so, yeah. So you'd say to the journalists, you know, people are producing podcasts. It's, it's at an exponential rate and put a statistic there. I can share my top five tips to make sure your podcast um, is rated number, you know, one within the first year. Um, and I'll share that with your audience. Yeah. So it's giving the audience value. It could also be your thought leadership about podcasts or, or about the topics that you're speaking interviewing people about okay that's so great like it's just an angle that you that i certainly never would have thought of yeah uh and i know certainly our audience for anyone that's and and it's like that it's mystified isn't it that whole yeah. tv and yeah well people look at media as something being external to them and it comes back to that whole starstruck phenomenon thing that oh it's it's for celebrities or you know it's for people who are doing more interesting things than me but everyone's doing something interesting and that's often a challenge i need to move my clients through they say do people really want to know this and i say yes they do you don't think it's fascinating because you're doing it each and every day and it's just part of you now but all the people out there 
I don't know this and they need to know and want to know this stuff. So as long as you're pitching it to the right audience, um, you're going to get cut through if you do it in the right way. Brilliant. And do you have a favourite success story of, of any particular client that you're able yes, to share? Yes, I do. I do. It was probably about four years ago. Um, it was an ordinary Friday and I got a phone call from this fabulous guy who said, I'm living in an uh, on an island in Micronesia. <laughs> my parents... This phone call must be costing you a fortune. Yeah. <laughs> so my parents own this island and I've pretty much been raised on this island in Micronesia. And now my parents are selling up because two of my siblings, so two of their kids have moved back to Australia and they feel like they just want to get back to Australia. But I had an idea to my parents. I said to them, let's not sell um, our dive resort the typical way most people would. Let's create a raffle, giving the opportunity for anyone in the world to win this amazing dive resort on this tiny island in Micronesia. And someone can win the possibility of living the lifestyle that we've lived. Wow. And the parents thought it was mental. <laughs> but <laughs> after talking about it, and they're obviously very special people themselves to have picked up and taken their kids to this um, life that they've all lived. They agreed. They said, let's give it a go. So the family created this beautiful, stunning, aspirational video. And you can only imagine, you know, the blue skies, the oceans, the underwater diving. And it was like, you too could live a life like this. And they created a website. It was called Win Your Island Estates. And the campaign was going to go for six weeks. So within six weeks, you could buy raffle tickets. Um, and at the end of the six weeks, as long as they'd solved, and I think they had to sell a minimum of 2,000 raffle tickets, um, then the resort would be yours. So he called me three weeks into the campaign and he said, look, I've had a little bit of success um, and a few people have bought tickets, probably a couple of hundred, but I've got three weeks to go and we need to sell a lot more. Can you help? And it was one of those moments that I could just see the media lapping it up. I could just see the story, the salt of this, the salt of the earth, Aussie family, you know, bringing up their beautiful family on this dive resort. Now they're raffling the pictures, everything. So I said, I think I can help you with this. Um, and we put it out there to the media and the media all went bananas over it. They <laughs> all wanted it. They all fought over it. And that's often where our problem starts, where yeah. they all want exclusivity. And so then we end up managing the media instead of, you know, trying to convince the media. Anyway, in the end, um, the Today Show did a story on it. And when they did that actual story, and so they, they flew someone out there and that person filmed on the island and everything. But when they reported on it, Billy Connolly was actually sitting on the couch. So even he endorsed it. And it, it was actually everywhere. It was just all over the media. And by the end of that three weeks, they, it was such a success that they'd made lots and lots and lots of profit, much more than they thought that they would. But the best story is that the person who won the raffle was an accountant from Wollongong, <laughs> who was the same age as the dad was when he'd, you know, moved to, to Micronesia. 
So it was in a way, I mean, I know this is a global podcast, but we live in Australia and it was an Australian family and it was just serendipitous that it was Guy from Wollongong who won this and he's now living in that dive resort and, you know, having an amazing life. Wow, yeah. what an amazing story. Yeah, it was such a great story because it, it had all the elements of a good story and I just felt like I'd made a huge difference to that family. Um, I just wish I'd charge commission for every <laughs> sale over 2000 never mind. Um, yeah, it was, it was just a fun project to work on. Brilliant. I'm curious to know, Monica, what, what do those type of experiences teach you about yourself and, yeah. and life in general? Yeah. I think life has such an element of magic about it and experiences like that teach me that there is magic to be had even in the work that you do every day. You know, you show up at work and you don't know what magic is going to happen today. And I think when you're open to that magic and magic is different for everyone, but I guess for me, it's what makes you feel the most alive and the most engaged with what you're doing. So what I've learned from those sorts of experiences, and I've had many of them in my business and in my life, it's just being open to the magic and, um, and recognizing it for the magic it is, because then you get more magic. <laughs> Where can people find this? Where, if people are curious to bring in you and utilise your services and your, your brilliant experience, how do people find you and get hold of you? Well, the best way that I can share my knowledge and experience with people is through speaking. So I speak at conferences, um, I do workshops for a whole range of organisations um, all over the world. So I've got a website that showcases um, everything that I'm doing and it's um, www.monicarosenfeld.com. Rosenfeld, R-O-S-E-N-F-E-L-D, is yeah, that right? F-E-L-D. And it'll be, it'll be available in the links below for people watching and for those uh-huh. listening, it'll be in the show notes as well. Do you, are you living your, your passion? I, I am, yes, I definitely am. So, I am so passionate about inspiring and bringing joy to people from the stage. That's my mission and that's my happy place and that's what I love to do. And I'm doing that in the area of both work. So I speak about media, I speak about personal branding and I speak about storytelling. And when I'm on stage and I'm sharing my knowledge and passion with people, I feel amazing and I feel this connection with the audience. I just feel the I imagine sort of an arrow going between me and the heart of everyone in that audience and just we're all in this big bubble of love. <laughs> it sounds really funny, <laughs> but anyway. So from a professional point of view, I'm living my best life. Um, but a couple of years ago, I decided to challenge myself again and started doing comedy. Um, and I absolutely am enjoying that as well. So for, for from a comedian term I'm probably in kindergarten um, because I'm about two and a half years in um, but I'm actually performing in the Melbourne Comedy Festival tonight um, and I'm at the stage where I'm sort of I've got a good tight 15 minute set so um, but this year I'll be creating a show for the Sydney Fringe Festival Wow! and just carrying on like that. 
by the time this this is broadcast, this will be long after the tonight's mm-hmm. event. Yeah. I'm going to come along and watch you perform tonight, oh, which I'm great. very excited to see. And uh, someone who's dabbled in some comedy, I totally appreciate mm. the amount of effort and work mm. involved. You know, I think yeah. Vin Jang, uh, who's a, a, a world class professional speaker communication coach talks about an hour per minute of mm. content and I suspect yeah. it might be more yeah. with comedy. It's just preparation is king and with comedy it's quite easy I think to come up with the ideas. The ideas aren't hard. It's then the crafting those ideas into words that will make people laugh. <laughs> That's probably the hardest bit and then it's performing that the, the first time you perform new material, I've heard Seinfeld say, it's like going to work in your underwear <laughs> because you don't know if it's funny. You think it's funny. You think there's something in this, and that's actually the name of Seinfeld's book, Is There Anything in This? Yeah. You think there's something in this. Your husband has said, yeah, there could be something in this, but until you're standing in front of an audience, you don't know, and your set will only get better the more and more you perform it because you've got to tweak it. So... I created a new five-minute set a few months ago and I performed the whole five-minute set for the first time one night, which is against all the rules. You're meant to just put one joke in at a time, but I didn't have time for all that. <laughs> Not with old dino balls over here. Yeah, so I thought I'm just going to do the whole set. And I turned up at the thing and I probably made the mistake of telling the organiser, I've got a brand new set tonight. And he said, the whole thing? And I was like, yes. And he was like, should I be worried? <laughs> and I said, it should be all right. Anyway, it went really well, um, but we videoed it and saw where it didn't get laughs. And then on our way home, we walked home from the event, we tweaked every single punchline. So by the time I got home, I had a revised set, um, which worked a lot better the next time. Brilliant. So, but the thing about it is, I have never been so scared as I was for the first time that I did comedy. So I did a course and as part of that course, six weeks later, there was a graduation show. That's typically the way these courses go. And within that six week period, if I even thought about being on stage doing comedy, my legs just turned to jelly and I I couldn't speak. My heart was racing and I was so damn scared. Um, But I worked through that fear because I knew on the other side of that fear is going to be development, growth and something awesome. And I thought, I'm either going to get on stage and absolutely love it and then I'll just keep exploring this or I'll hate it, feel shocked, embarrassed and like I want the earth to open up and then I'll just forget I ever did it and hope everyone in the audience forgets that I've ever done it as well. (laughs) Luckily, it wasn't that scenario. and now, and I've spoken to other comics about this, the, the amount of fear gets less and less. So now it's more about, you know, it's about five minutes before getting called on stage. And if I didn't have that, I'd be worried because, yeah. you know, that's that bit of adrenaline surge. But it's about practice. So I think it's the same with anything. The more you do it, the more you expose yourself to it, the less you fear that thing. And then in my case, I'll always find something else that scares the shit out of me. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's just facing that fear, working through it, um, and then you will always grow as a person as you do that. Um, and that's that's the message that I really want to impart. So 
whether I'm talking about media or branding, marketing, storytelling, my message that I'm passionate about is that you will find that spark of magic in your life by finding the fear, working through it and evolving as a human being. And I know that's very much your message as well. Yeah, amen. Uh, amen, Monica. And, and uh, it's funny, you know, maybe maybe off the back of you and I speaking about doing this recently, I've started watching reruns of the Johnny Carson show mm-hmm. and Dick Cavett. And if, um, particularly Johnny Carson's uh, will have uh, people like Jay Leno and uh, like Chris Rock, all these amazing mm. comedians, their very first yeah. uh, television oh. sets. And, you know, you're talking about filmed in the 1970s here. Yeah. And it's so interesting as a speaker mm. who's trying to master his craft, mm. watching these guys and girls. I think Roseanne Barr was one I watched mm-hmm. the other day as well. Jesus Christ, that was fascinating. <laughs> But the the levels of professionalism mm. and they people watch comedians like that and they go, you know, I'd love to be able to get up and mm. just you know, they just riff. These people mm. have dedicated oh, thousands yes. of hours to this, haven't they? Thousands of hours, yeah. Um, I'm gonna tell a joke mm-hmm. and I'd love for you to have one in return. Really putting you on the spot oh here. My, okay. my my joke is what's the difference between an alligator and a crocodile? The <laughs> one will see you later, while the other one will see you in a while. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Do you have anything? <laughs> oh, God. Um, What's a favourite um, joke? Hmm. It doesn't have to be yours. Okay. Okay. Well, it's a bit long-winded. Yeah, we'll get some. Okay. I think one of my favourites is um, Seinfeld, who... And I, I saw this in his documentary, which is basically he was prepping for his comeback. And he got on stage and he was like, why? So this is how I work. I get on stage and I get you guys to tell me if I'm funny. But you don't know how to write a joke. Why am I getting you to tell me I'm funny when you haven't got the slightest clue <laughs> on how to write comedy? He said, that's like me showing up at your work and saying, no, that's not how you do it. No, no, don't type that. No, no, put that away. No, no. I just, I love metaphors in comedy. So I just thought the way, he, I mean, that example of comedy is so funny. Like we're validated as comedians by the audience, but they don't know how to write a joke. They just know what makes them laugh. So so anyway, that's that's sort of one of my favourite Seinfeld jokes. I do like Jerry Seinfeld. He's a funny man. I do catch myself watching reruns of Seinfeld yeah, a yeah, lot. Yeah, Monica, this has been a really, really fascinating conversation for mine. And I, I, I know our audience will um, be benefiting from just wonderful amounts of information here. Do you have any concluding thoughts for our audience today? My concluding thoughts are think about where you're at right now and do you feel free? Do you feel happy? And do you have magic in your life? And if you don't have one of all of those, think about something that you can challenge yourself with, something you actually want to do. So not something that you think, oh, dread doing, but something you've always wanted to do, but either fear it or have felt for whatever reason you can't do it. And you've made a whole list of excuses why you can't do it. And make a commitment today to take the baby step to do that thing. And you will 
thank yourself and me <laughs> later and I think I'll just leave it leave that as my parting message. Ladies and gentlemen, Monica Rosenfeld. Thank you so much. Thanks for It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available and not only just bring them on but to develop relationships with them that build into know like and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire you'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience go to podcastingheroes.com it's p-o-d-c-a-s-t-i-n-g-h-e-r-o-e-s.com